1: we're thankful for the opportunity to come into your presence and be taught by you you've given us your word it's written down in this book you preserved it throughout generations and you have put it in our hands even this very day and we ask you now will you finish the work that you began of teaching us by right now sending your spirit to open this book to us and press these truths into our minds and hearts. You brought the truth all this way through all this distance and time, and we pray now, Lord, press it home and instruct, counsel us. Do so in great power. Show your might to counsel us. You're faithful to do that always, Will you do it and do that for the sake of peace? Peace between us and you, peace in our own hearts, peace with us in the world here. Bring your kingdom of righteousness and justice. Do that right now. Teach, please. As we look to you for and we say thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Bible often uses darkness as a metaphor for what's wrong in the world and, in fact, what's wrong in each of us. Sometimes darkness is a reference to clear and explicit evil. But at other times, probably most of the time, it's it's more about sin-induced ignorance or confusion or a lack of understanding or a futility in life or... Some sort of an emptiness and a hopelessness. It's just nothing goes right. Nothing works. Everything's broken. That's a spectrum of, of problem there. And across that whole spectrum, it's darkness. It comes in lots of different shades. But it's here. In fact, it's everywhere. And a lot of the times, we mostly just try to turn the channel and avoid it tune it out, not listen, not look. But it comes at us, and we're forced to deal with it. And Then if we're forced to deal with it, kind of how we deal with it is we don't. We get crushed by it. Or we redouble our efforts and try really, really, really hard to put out the darkness. But the Bible is clear that the world remains largely still trapped in it And sometimes we hear some things like we just heard this morning, and if you delve into what Pastor Bryant was talking about, and you see 65,000 people in a camp, in a flood zone, who haven't eaten in a month, or have eaten just a little bit, just enough to just barely stay alive, you think, oh my... And then if you move north of there to a country being bombarded, and the reason they're collecting generators and sleeping bags is that they're looking at a Ukrainian winter without heat. And you think, oh my, darkness. It's out there, but it's also right here, here. The Bible's clear about that. And we can't fix it you know one of the, the, the hard things about what we heard earlier is we can't send enough money to a camp in the middle of Africa to feed all those people. so we have to pray because we can't fix that. we can't stop this war we can't we can't. Fix it. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus brings light. This Jesus, the one that we've been seeing so far in this Gospel of Matthew, not the Jesus of the world, the Jesus of different religions, imaginations, the Jesus of Matthew. This one who is fully God, the second person of the one triune God, the only Jesus there is, the only God there is, and that one who became man, the son of God. We've been looking at him through Matthew so far. That one is the light and he stepped into a world that was dark without him to shine, to begin to shine. Like, like at a sunrise, there, there's still, when the sun rises, the sun's up, you see, but there's still plenty of shadow all over the place. He has come, he's begun to shine. And therefore, it is possible to escape the control of darkness and live in the light, even amidst the darkness. That's what we're going to be considering today in Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17. So I'm going to read the passage, make a couple of comments about some of the details, and then draw out three larger observations. So this is Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4. So, verse 12 mentions the arrest of John the Baptist, and we can read more about that elsewhere discussed elsewhere but Matthew just skips all that and in fact skips all the time that Jesus spent there ministering in Judea after the events we've already seen because he wants to start his account of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee and if you kind of mentally fast forward to the end of the book Matthew 28 he also wants to end his account of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee he wants to start and end in Galilee of the Gentiles Straddling the lands that were allotted way back to the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, Galilee was a rather small region lying in the north of Israel. It was was to the north of Samaria, which is a larger region, which itself was to the north of Judea where Jerusalem is. So Galilee is kind of up there, right in the border, northern edge of the land. And Phoenicia was to the west towards the Mediterranean. Syria, foreign land, was to the north, and the Jordan River formed its east, the edge, the eastern edge. So located where it was, Galilee was separated from Jerusalem, the kind of the religious seat of the land where the temple was, and conversely it was very exposed to lots of foreign travel, lots of foreign commerce, lots of foreign culture. So Galilee was very well populated, it was economically robust, and it was very mixed. Certainly, there were Jewish people present there. Certainly, there were Jewish people, at least in their bloodlines. And certainly, there were a lot of Gentiles and a lot of Gentile influence. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles for centuries because of that. Nazareth was here in Galilee, out in the sticks. you recall. That's where Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus, you know, took little Jesus up there to, out in the middle of nowhere, we talked about that already. But here in verse 13, coming back to Galilee, Jesus will no longer call Nazareth home. He moves to Capernaum by the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee. And no one knows for certain how large Capernaum was. Best guess puts it at kind of a modest 10,000 people. That's where he went. And as verse 17 concludes this section, from that time on he began to preach. So it's pointing out from that time on, so it started here and it continues, He began to preach. So a new day dawns here. Something starts, the ministry of Jesus. But before the light of dawn, there is darkness. And that's what takes us to our first observation. Now, as we deal with this first observation, let me say at the front end of this that I'm not trying to be unnecessarily bleak. unnecessarily bleak. I, I, am, I can be cast that way because I am a, kind of a pessimist and people sometimes assume that when I start talking like this, well, that's just Steve coming out. This is real. This is in the Bible. There is a second point that follows. <laughs> unnecessarily bleak. But light only matters if there's darkness. Light only matters if there's darkness. In the first observation, the human predicament, without the Lord we live in darkness, under looming death. Without the Lord, this is the human predicament. We live in darkness, under looming death. Jesus went to Galilee and to Capernaum by the sea knowing exactly what he was doing and doing it on purpose so that, the text says, so that what Isaiah said would be fulfilled. Jesus is initiating something predicted long ago by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 about God's anointed, appointed, messianic savior king. And he's very deliberately trying to say, that is me. That back there, me. And so, verse 15, the the prophecy from Isaiah, he goes to that place. And verse 16, he's about to do what verse 16 is about. He's going to do what Isaiah said in the place Isaiah said it was going to happen. So he's being very deliberate here. But before we look at at those verses, particularly that come from Isaiah 9, we need to grasp the whole context of this quote, and that matters. We mention this a lot. In the New Testament, very often there are Old Testament quotes. We've seen a bunch of them already. Matthew's, this is Matthew's M.O. He quotes something from the Old Testament. And when those quotes come in, they are meant to bring the whole context of the line or the words quoted. Brings the whole thing. Like if I were to say to you, four score and seven years ago, a bunch of stuff came to your mind there. You thought of the Gettysburg Address, hopefully. Hopefully. The Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, maybe you thought of Abraham Lincoln, you thought of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Civil War, you brought a whole bunch of stuff with you and you maybe thought of what the Civil War was about and, and why he was met there on that hallowed ground, you, you thought of all those things when I said the words four score and seven years ago. Matthew says some words here, he quotes them and he knows, his audience knows the context and is going to bring all of that in. We need to bring all of that context in. So first, let's check what's the context of this. And you know what? We've actually already checked the context of this because Matthew's already dipped us into Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. There's a thing going on here in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. And we've already been there when we were in Matthew 1 with the mention of Emmanuel. Recall that from some weeks back. In Isaiah 7, the context for that Emmanuel mention, Israel is about to get overwhelmed by Assyria because they have departed from God and he is going to discipline them in judgment. Everything we're going to see here is sin-induced. They have turned away from the Lord and they will not be with him. So in Isaiah 7, they're going to be overwhelmed. And in 7 and into Isaiah 8, yes, there will be some faithful remnant, some small number of people will stick with the Lord, but by far not most. And by the end of Isaiah chapter 8, the people are depicted as greatly distressed and hungry. They face social unrest and political disaster as they are oppressed by others in power over them and they are vulnerable and afraid and raging in contempt against the king and against their God. And the very end of the chapter describes them as crying out to different spiritual helps, all kinds of different ways that they're trying to get, we're going to try to fix this. We've got a problem here we're going to try to fix. So they cry out to all kinds of other gods, the created order itself, the ground. They're trying to make a life, to assemble things with their own hands, to worship the creation in some way or another. But all that they get out of it, very end of Isaiah chapter 8, is darkness and gloom. That's immediately before our verse. All of that is rooted in their sin. Apart from God, that's where they are. So our quote from chapter 9 continues that. All that darkness and all that gloom, and it takes us in a slightly different, deeper direction, one of despair, deep darkness, or as Matthew puts it, the region of the shadow of death. The place where death looms over us, like an unavoidable shadow that is so deeply dark that you can't see. You ever been somewhere where it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face? He's using that image to describe what it's like, not just to face the the chapter 8 troubles of life but to come all the way to the end of the chapter 8 troubles of life and to face the ultimate trouble of life death darkness and darkness deep darkness place where death looms over us like an unavoidable shadow that is very expressly hopeless hopeless That's the human condition with the varnish stripped off it. All due to sin. It's all in the world because of sin and they're experiencing it because of sin. That's the human condition. Now, rarely do any of us experience all of that to the maximum degree. That's, that's not usually what happens. They're in a uniquely bad spot. But all of that to some degree is what's coming to us, what we sit in. Darkness shades of it. That's what life is. And apart from God, where God is not our hope, the human situation is one of an endless searching for the different ways to control the darkness and fix it or to cover it over and step away from it and pretend it's not there. But all the while we are decaying and we are moving towards the ultimate end of darkness, the darkness of death. That's where we're going. Decay and dust. I I read a really interesting devotional book this week. Somebody sent it to me in the mail. I read this and the first devotional was about dust. And the writer makes the point, dust is everywhere. And sometimes you see it when you do that. I mean, you put your hand on the, t- little kid puts a hand on the TV, points it out. You can kind of see the dust, but there's dust everywhere. And what the dust is there in the wisdom and providence of God to remind us of is decay and death. Dust. Dust outside is the decay and death of the nature order and dust in the house is Your skin cells. There's darkness there in the dust. Every one of us is headed there. All the loved ones that you treasure are headed there. The hopes you had with them, they're headed there. The joys of life are running through our fingers like sand. And all this time, we're pretending that we don't know, that the money's going to run out, that we're going to forget our names. Someone else is going to attend to our physical needs and then we're going to go into the grave. We're pretending we don't know that. We're pretending we can control all that. We're pretending we can, we can hold it at, at, at bay. That's the human condition though and that is dark. Death is the final irresistible regulator of life. Everything that we do is in relation to it. We make decisions about our diet and our habits. We buckle in. We look both ways when we cross the street. And we still can't stop it. That's not just chapter 8 of Isaiah. That's chapter 9 of Isaiah. The deep darkness of death. And it governs us apart from God. If there was no but God coming up in this, that would be a terrible message there is a second point coming up. But that's reality. And from time to time, someone will push back on that and, and as I said, maybe say that, you know, that's, that's your personality coming through or I don't worry about death, I just it's view it as a part of life and I try to look on the bright side of things and walk on the sunny side of the street and be, you know don't worry, be happy. And to that I, I want to say, okay, I'm not, as I said, I'm not trying to be unnecessarily dark. I don't need to convince you of anything here. I actually think this will convince you of it by itself. The Bible wants to point this out though because apart from this, the light doesn't matter. This is the necessary reality that's gotta be embraced so that then the solution appears to be a solution to a real problem. It's a, this is the setup for a solution. Sick people go to doctors and we're all sick. We can't fix it ourselves. We need help to come from outside of us to come to us and that's what the second point is about. Bless God. Apart from him, we live in darkness under looming death but God. Here's the second observation. Jesus' kingdom has come as light dawning in our darkness. Jesus' kingdom has come as light dawning in our darkness. As we saw the two verses that are quoted here are coming from Isaiah, beginning of Isaiah 9. Closely aligns with what's come before, but it's, it's from Isaiah 9. The people dwelling in darkness, oh, but here's a flip, have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. There's a positive turn there, which, which of course we're gonna unpack here. But before we do, let's just be really clear and thankful about where the positive turn comes from. Who caused this and what it means for us? The, the analogy here is obvious. I mean, you can see the analogy, the, the sun rising, it kind of breaks into the, the darkness. At first you just see it just kind of a little bit brighter and you can see a little bit, but then usually at some point, the sun will break over a tree line or over a, a, a crest of a hill and then it's so bright you can't look at it. A bright light dawns on you. But as that happens, there's still shadows all around, sure, but the bright light has dawned, and none of that was caused or influenced by any of us. It changes how we live for the good, but we didn't make any of that happen. It happened to us. So this analogy is crystal clear. Jesus is the light, what his ministry is is the light. But before we get into that, we have to just say, Thank God for God's grace that sent light. Because the first point is terrible. But God in grace, God in grace sent light. So what we're now going to be exploring here is what God has done kindly in this darkness. He's sent in light. How we respond to it is going to be the third point. Jesus moved to Galilee to the region by the sea Just to make this point, I'm that one. It's obviously baked into the analogy here. But once we've seen the analogy darkness and light, we kind of have to leave the analogy and say, what exactly does that mean? I get dark, I get light, I get sunrise, I get shadows, I I get the metaphor, but... It would be helpful if God was specific because all the stuff that I just talked about being darkness, if God's not specific, we might latch on to some answer to some of that. If darkness is famine in a camp in Africa, period, then maybe Jesus provides food. That's what's good about him. He feeds people. See what I'm saying there? If God does not define for us what does the light mean, then we're kind of left to our own definitions, and we might get misled. We might focus on Jesus as provider of food, physically. There's more going on than that. So does God actually step us out of the metaphor and explain what he means by light and darkness? Yes, he does in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you haven't yet, it might be helpful if you flip to Isaiah 9 to look at it. Many of us probably realize that Isaiah 9 is one of those famous Christmas passages that really shouldn't be limited to the Christmas season only because it's about Jesus, the Messiah, his nature, and his kingdom always. This is the light that shines into the darkness. So looking at Isaiah chapter 9 now, and 1 and 2 is... The reference to our is a connection to our passage. We're going to move on past that. Verse 3, Isaiah 9:3. These people on whom light has dawned, they rejoice. Verse 4, they were delivered from their oppressors. Verse 5, battle and warfare and attack and threat is no more. So they rejoice as they're delivered from oppressors and they don't face war anymore. Verse 6 now, all of that because, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Obviously, this is a Christmas passage, right? You know this. This son born, this child, the government on his shoulders, the, the authority to rule bestowed upon him. Obviously referring to the Messiah, to Jesus He's given the right to reign, this one who is called. And you can almost hear the refrain of Handel's Messiah here, right? As he kind of like jumps through the next four descriptors. Wonderful. Counselor. You've heard that. The key is in the modifiers, not the nouns. So ironically, Handel's Messiah helps us. Wonderful. That's the key. It's the modifier. The nouns in these four descriptors are all just ways that people described leaders in that day. They were counselors. They gave instruction. They were fathers like founding fathers, princes, even, yes, God sometimes. The modifiers tell us what's going on here. And just so we don't lose track, realize it could be hard. To, we're in Matthew, now we're in Isaiah. Eight. Where are we exactly? We're trying to figure out what light means. When he says, this Messiah, this Jesus, is light in the darkness, leave the metaphor behind, please. What do you mean by that? What about him is light? The descriptors. He sent to reign a wonderful counselor. Here's Light. He will counsel, instruct, teach, give law that is wonderful, filled with wonder, that is omnisciently wise and deep and profound. His counsel is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. What he teaches is right and true and holy and pure, full of wonder and amazement as it brings to us different existence and a different future. He's going to teach things. As this goes on, this Jesus is going to teach things, and he's going to teach them in a way that leaves people starstruck. That is amazing that is profound, that that just undoes me and it carries with it the weight, the, the heaviness of the divine authority. It's going to change people from the inside out and make them new, make them new creations. He is a counselor that counsels in wonder and in amazement. He gives instruction that shows us how to walk. A lamp to her feet wonderful, and mighty. All things, all things are in his hand. All things. The power in this ruler, Jesus is going to do things, raise the dead, cast out demons, heal countless diseases, calm storms, walk on water. Not just to impress us with the show, not just to make us like amazed, but to show us something. That everything here in the spiritual realm and everything here in the, in the physical realm is controlled by him, gathered together by him to execute his purposes. He providentially reigns through all things in might. So so there is no more vulnerability and there is no more failure. You know, those words don't actually mean anything when in a sentence with God. He's not vulnerable and he never fails. He's never threatened or overcome. He's light shining into the darkness because he controls everything that we cannot and he's got a purpose that lines up with his wonderful counsel. And that carries on for forever and ever and ever because he is everlasting, third word. He never ends. He never departs. He's never term limited out. He never dies. Well, he did once, but then he didn't. Even death sits under his might. He lasts for forever to set up a kingdom that is a kingdom of peace. He's the Prince of Peace. And that's not just no more war, that's the kingdom of Shalom that is characterized, as the next verse says, as forever and ever he goes on in righteousness and justice and peace. It is the kingdom in which everything right, in which finally All is light and there is no darkness. No, not any darkness at all. That's the kingdom. That's the king who has come into the world and that's why he's light. God told us in those four descriptors there in Isaiah, what I mean when I say light has come into the darkness, what I mean is that instruction that tells you how and the one who mightily can enact it and make it so, and the one who is going to be there doing that for forever, and the one who brings you shalom, that is the kingdom of righteousness and justice and rest and peace and hope and joy, that one has come into the world, and what Matthew didn't know, what Isaiah is yet to say, and he's actually going to deal with the problem that caused all of that, sin and unbelief. That's what God means by light. That's what God graciously delivered to us a child, a son, with the government on his shoulders that is wise and true and mighty and everlasting. Shalom. That's the answer to darkness. And that's come. From that point on, like sunlight dawning, yeah, there are still shadows for sure. Still shadows for sure. The world is still, in a lot of ways, gripped by darkness. But there's light in it. There's that kingdom in it. There's that king in it. Because God graciously sent him. To live in that kingdom, to live under that king, is to live in light even in the midst of darkness. That's what dawned in Galilee one day, sent by God's grace. And as Isaiah 9, that section finishes, the zeal of the Lord accomplished it. There's bad news and then there's good news. But the third point says how we respond is actually critical. Critical. There's bad news and there's good news. But, thirdly, the required response we step into Jesus' kingdom of light by faith based repentance. We step into Jesus' kingdom of light by faith based repentance. In Back in Matthew, verse 17, he leaves off, quoting Isaiah, and he comes around to give us the first taste of Jesus' ministry as the dawn begins. And Jesus preaches something that's extremely helpful because without this, we might think that it's applicable to everybody, that it's when the sun rises, everybody who can see it, sees it. That's not the case, actually, with this S-O-N there's a response one time and then as I'm gonna say at the very end kind of our ongoing response and this response this call from Jesus sounds exactly like John the Baptist actually same words Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in chapter 3 verse 2 that's what John said the the phrasing is the same. The timing is a little different because the urgency is ramped up. Jesus was coming, as John spoke it, and now Jesus is here preaching the same thing. Here's the kingdom, so we must repent. And as we discussed before, repent. What that word means? Its core. It's about turning. It's about turning from one thing to something else. That's what repenting is. Turning from one thing to another. And in this case. Biblical repentance is a whole person turning from sin from sin to trusting in Christ trusting in Christ and what he did rather than what I do and what I might do his rule rather than my own wisdom that's biblical repentance and here's a key point we discussed this more when we, we talked about what John the Baptist was saying key point Biblical repentance is a whole person turning from sin to righteousness and it is faith created. Faith created turning. It always comes from faith. So, in other words, hear this because in a second I'm going to call you to repent. Here's what I mean by that in terms of this passage a person hears darkness is real and darkness is all around me and darkness is in this world and darkness is actually a threat to me and darkness is actually even sometimes in me and that's because of in one way or another, sin it hears that the first point and says Yep. I believe that. I hear that, and I believe it. And then, here's the offer of the kingdom of light. Second point. Come in Jesus. Here's his character described and says, and that's what I need. I need not just somebody to address my physical realities. I need somebody also to teach me the way to walk and to give me power to walk in it and to... To be able to do that for my entire life and to deliver me into the place of light and to deal with the root problem that causes me to wander away. That's the answer that I need. That's Jesus. Hears that and believes that. So believes there's darkness and believes that Jesus is the light and then says... I will turn to you, Jesus, and I will cast all of my hope on you, and I will believe that you are the one that I need. Apart from you, I am without hope. It's repentance that is created by faith. And obviously, that's critical to hear for some of us here this morning who, if you're not a Christian yet. And I I say that to people, I, I don't know everybody here, but I say that to people who know they're not Christians, who say, like, I'm just here checking this out, I don't know what to think of it yet, then this is for you. There's an offer here that begins pretty hard describing the darkness that you are in, and then there's an offer that you can, you can know the light. But the call then is, hear that and say, I believe that, And hear Jesus offer and say, I believe that. And I understand what Matthew at this point has not yet been able to describe because it's about the cross. It hasn't happened. I understand Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for my sin. I understand that and I believe that. There's a call to you then. Come. Repent. Turn from what you have been trusting. And turn to Jesus. And be able to live in light amidst darkness. I say that to some who maybe know, I'm not a Christian, I'm just checking this out. But I also want to say, often, I don't know how often, but often people grow up around the church, in the church, and hear this stuff and say, yeah, I suppose. Hold on. Please consider that. If this is real, then yeah, I suppose, doesn't work. It either isn't real, so don't bother, or it is real, and you must repent and turn from, yeah, I suppose, lackadaisical, eh, to... This is my hope. This one is my hope. I cast myself on him. Jesus, please, have me. I leave that aside. You are the one I need to deal with the darkness in my life. You are the one I need to deal with by sin. You are the one I need to teach me the way to go, to give me the power to walk in it, to deliver me to the kingdom of peace. I need you. And yeah, I don't know. It doesn't work. Please, if that's you, check that for a second. One of the one of the great burdens that I have, this is a little aside here. One of the great burdens that I have as a pastor of a church that teaches the Bible is that it's sort of like inoculating people against the Bible. Because you hear this so often, you stopped listening a decade ago. When you were in third grade, you're you're now in high school and you haven't been listening for ten years or you've gone away to college. Can't remember the last time I actually wasn't counting the ceiling tiles, I was actually listening to the word taught. Yeah, yeah, I know it all. Do you? And I'm not at all in any way trying to be with you. I'm trying to plead with you. This is something that I'm concerned about, particularly for young people. You're going into a world that's dark and getting crazy dark by the moment. Repent. Cast your hope and your life on Jesus. So maybe you know you're not a Christian, you're thinking about this. Maybe as you think about it, you need to think about it. But probably... 95, 98, 99% of us, I, I don't know, but most of us here for sure, you know you're a Christian and you believe this wholeheartedly. Amen. Repent. I said this back when we talked in chapter three about John the Baptist. I think it was Martin Luther that said, all of the Christian life is repenting. We are Repenters. Because repenting to turn from ourself to Jesus is, is not just what we do once and then we're done. It's what we do all the time because our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the one we love. We come back. That's how you walk in the light now as a Christian, today. And this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, by repenting and coming back. Not to become a Christian, but because you are a Christian you hear this and you say yes that's true Lord I have wandered I want to come back I don't want to dabble in the darkness I need your light please instruct me please show me the way to walk and give me your powerful hand in me and on me and over me to lead me in that path and bring me to peace and righteousness and justice repent repent Hear this, believe it. Hear his offer, believe it, and turn to him. That faith-created repentance is the daily key to the Christian's fellowship with God by the Spirit. Walking in and enjoying the light now amidst the world that's still, in a lot of ways, stuck in shadows. So, wherever you are, just checking it out, been around this for a long time and not thinking about it fervently committed wherever you are do you need to repent that's the way we step into and continue to walk in the kingdom of light and enjoy this gracious gift from God Jesus and his reign repent may pray. Lord, would you help us wherever we are on that spectrum, would you help us to turn to you? Would you speak and convince people the truth and the horror of darkness, the tragedy of sin, And will you speak and convince people the truth of the beauty of the gracious Jesus, a gift from God. And will you lead us humbly to turn from ourselves, to turn to you, believing that you will save and lead us to walk in the light. Do that work, I pray, on this people here, Lord, and on me. pray in his name.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org